Hey, good morning. Uh, I am Jamie Borchik. I'm a elder and teaching pastor here at Park. Uh, if I haven't met you, that's likely because for the last couple months, my family and I have been out of the country. We've been serving with Athletes in Action in Italy. And I want to say a huge thank you to all of you who have prayed for us, have checked in along the way, have read our updates. Uh, really grateful for you as a church. And you know, if you're visiting today, you heard from Johnny earlier, who's a missionary in Central Asia. Um, we just had a group from Park who, who were over in, uh, in the Middle East, um, serving a number of our missionaries around the world. We are a church that cares about the world. We care about Chicago, we care about our neighborhood, but we also care about the nations and care about the world. So we want to send to the world. Um, and so thanks for letting us be a part of that. Thanks for encouraging us to go and blessing us to go for a few months there. Uh, I'm still trying to wrap my head around what all happened the last couple months with three young kids traveling in, um, in another part of the world. But uh, on the whole, it was amazing. I can't wait to tell you more about it. One quick story, I'm wearing this shirt. This shirt was a gift from our friend Paulo. Paulo is a member of the Italian Olympic Committee. He's um, he oversees all of the relationships for all of the athletes who compete for Italy globally. And uh, Paulo is not a Christian, but he loves uh, what we do with Athletes in Action, um, some of the resources we provide, and he's been a real champion for us. And Paulo is uh, spiritually interested. He's kind of curious. I just had coffee with him last week, right before we came back to the States. And uh, he's a guy you can be praying for. And so just one, one small picture of some of the work that God is doing there, um, some real favor that he has shown. So... Thanks for, uh, thanks for championing us. Thanks for being a part of that. And uh, it's great to be back with you. My uh, Kinsey and our boys, uh, Trip and Jet are here today. Archer has an ear infection, so Kinsey's with him at the doctor right now this morning. So she's sad not to be here, but we'll be back soon and look forward to catching up with all of you in the very near future. Now, uh, if you've got a Bible, you can find 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9. That's where we're going to be this morning. And uh, let's see a story to kick things off. So one of my earliest memories happened when I was about six years old. I was upstairs in the house I lived in with my parents back in Ohio, and uh, I was sitting in this room that my mom used. It was kind of an extra bedroom that my mom used as an office. And as I was in this room, I noticed that on the desk, there was a landline telephone. Anybody remember landline telephones? That's the thing people made phone calls on, college students, uh, before Steve Jobs came around. That's how you communicated with people. So landline telephone on the desk, and I remember looking at it, and in my six-year-old brain, I had this very clear thought, I'm not supposed to call 911, followed immediately by another thought, which was, I'm going to call 911. And then little six-year-old Jamie picks up the phone, nine, you had to, you had to like turn a little dial thing, okay, that's how this worked. So nine, one, one. Ring, ring. Operator, dispatcher picks up. 911, what's your emergency? Slam the phone down. Then, just two seconds later, I hear the phone start to ring. And I hear my mother pick up the phone downstairs in the kitchen. And she then yells upstairs and says, Jamie, did you call 911? And I was caught. And so in that moment, I knew that what I had done was wrong. I knew that I was in the wrong. And my reaction in that moment was I literally got down on my knees and I crawled underneath the desk and I hid underneath the desk and waited until she came and got me. Now, I had visions as I was hiding of the police coming and taking me away for life, of uh, my mom blowing up at me. You know, I'm, I'm okay. I'm still here. I didn't go to jail for that. But I was scared, and in my fear, I hid. In my fear, I hid. 
Now, obviously, uh, we all have experiences in life where we feel similar sorts of things. I share that story this morning because when I've found myself in similar situations, I've done that same kind of thing. Maybe not physically, but emotionally or relationally, I've hid. So for example, when I was a kid and my best friend's dad picked all of my friends except for me to be on this travel baseball team, I was the one left out. I just wanted to hide. Or when I was in high school and this girlfriend that I really liked cheated on me with one of my best friends and everyone in school knew about it. I just wanted to hide. Or a few years ago when I was uh, serving in ministry on a university campus and I was escorted off of that campus by security rather unfairly, I just wanted to hide. Or now, whenever one of my kids acts up and misbehaves in public, which happens not infrequently, I just want to hide. I just want to hide. In situations like that, I feel shame and I feel fear and I just want to go into hiding. What do you do in those moments? What do you do in those moments? Those moments where you're not enough, where you're inadequate, where you're less than, where you're an outsider, when you're in trouble, when you're ashamed, how do you respond? So often in those moments, we hide in fear, wondering if there's any kind of way out. Well, today, We're going to look at a story in 2 Samuel chapter 9 about how one man found the way out. Or to be more precise, how how the way out actually came and found one man. So let me pray, and we're going to take a look at our text. Father, thanks for this church community. It is a joy to be back here today. I feel really blessed by this family of faith. And thank you that you allow us to gather together week to week. Uh, Father, even standing here and thinking about this, like this gathering is larger than every church that I know of in Italy right now, Um, every evangelical church in Italy. And so I just praise you for this community of faith. I think that we can gather, we can open your word, that we can sing, that we can worship you together. And I pray that as we open this text of scripture, that you would meet us in the places where we want to hide. You would draw some things out of our heart, that you would speak to us, you'd minister to us today. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, let me give you a little background on this story, and then we're going to read it. So 2 Samuel, the book of 2 Samuel, tells the story of the reign of King David of Israel. David lived about 950 years before Christ, and he built Israel into a global power. So far in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, David has been successful in everything that he has attempted. He's got favor with God. He's got favor with all the people. He's the golden boy with the Midas touch. And he's been super faithful along the way. His character is strong. And chapter 9 happens at the apex of the book. This is the high point of David's reign. And that's where our story begins. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? So the story begins with David asking if there are any surviving relatives of the former king, Saul. You'll remember that Saul was the first king of Israel. And Saul had, had, been, uh, had risen to power, but then he turned away from God. And then he spent most of his time running around the mountains chasing David, trying to kill him. So Saul was David's enemy. And here's David as the new king looking for relatives of Saul. Now in the ancient world, the way that it worked when a new king came to power 
was that everyone who was associated with the old king got to be intimately acquainted with the sharp end of a sword. The new king would eliminate all of his potential rivals. So think of think Game of Thrones here. That's what's going on. And here's David looking for a member of the old king's family, which begs the question, right in verse 1, begs the question, what is David going to do when he finds someone? Look at what he says that he wants to do. It's not what you would expect. He says, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now, Jonathan was Saul's oldest son, and he also happened to be David's best friend. And around the time that Saul went nuts and started trying to kill David, David and Jonathan made this agreement between themselves. As Saul's son, Jonathan was the heir to the throne. He was next in line to become king. But Jonathan loved David, and Jonathan knew that God intended for David to actually become the king. And so Jonathan swore his allegiance and his support to this rival. And in return, David promised Jonathan that when David did become king, as God had promised him he would, David promised that he would not then destroy Jonathan's family, but would instead protect Jonathan and his family. And here David is saying that he wants to honor that promise by showing kindness to a relative, to a member of Saul's family. Now the word kindness here is the Hebrew word chesed. Can you all say that with me? Chesed. Give it a shot. Chesed. You got your little ch into it, okay? Chesed. You got it? Okay, so chesed. And it's a word that's used throughout the Old Testament scriptures to refer to God's steadfast love. It's God's never-ending, never-giving-up, always-and-forever, covenant-faithfulness kind of committed love for his people. It's one of God's chief attributes, and it defines the way that God relates to his people. And David here says that he wants to show chesed, he wants to show that kindness to a member of Saul's family. So here's the intrigue at the outset of the story. David is looking for a rival who ordinarily he'd be expected to kill. But he's saying that instead he wants to show chesed to that person. So what's he going to do? Pick up the story in verse 2. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lo-Debar. So we find out there is someone from Saul's family. We don't get his name yet, but we find out that he's actually Jonathan's son and that he's crippled and that he's, that he's living at a place called Lo-Debar, which is about 50 or 60 miles from where David is in Jerusalem. Now, why might this crippled son of David's former rival be living in a city 50 to 60 miles away in someone else's home? Why might he be in that place? Well, it's probably because he knows what happens to the children, the family members of former kings. This guy is in hiding. And now David knows where to find him. And what will David do when he does? Verse 5. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, 
came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. So now we get a name, Mephibosheth. You got to practice that one too. Give it a shot. Mephibosheth. You got that? And we actually know a few things about this guy from earlier on in 2 Samuel chapter 4. Mephibosheth was one of those guys who just can't catch a break in life. As the son of Jonathan, he was born a prince. He would have been next in line after his father to become the king. But when he was five years old, both his dad and his grandfather were killed in battle. And because his nurse knew how Game of Thrones worked, she took the little boy and she took off running with the child in her arms, running with this little five-year-old boy, carrying him, trying to get him off to safety. But while she's running away and trying to protect him, she actually slips, she trips, and she drops him. And he falls, and he actually breaks both of his legs. And without the kind of modern medicine that we enjoy today, those legs don't heal properly. And so for the rest of his life, because of that event when he was five years old, for the rest of his life, he's crippled and he can't walk. So Mephibosheth has no family left. He's lame. And he's got no choice but to spend his life in hiding. Ashamed of his family and where he came from, ashamed perhaps of his disability, and afraid of what will happen to him if ever the new king finds out where he is and who he is. And so at this point, for 20 or 30 years of his life, that has been Mephibosheth's story. And now the new king has found him. And the new king has brought him back to the city where he once fled. And as he somehow bows his crippled body before King David, he can't help but expect that what comes next is a sword through his neck. Because that's what happens when the new king finds the family of the old king. In so many ways, Mephibosheth's life has been like a bad dream. And now the nightmare ending that he's always feared seems to be coming true. Shame, fear, hiding. That's Mephibosheth's story. And the truth is that many of us, many of us live our lives in the same way. Shame, fear, hiding. For some of us, it's because of things that we have done. We feel guilty and ashamed because of choices we've made or actions we've taken that have gotten us in trouble or have hurt other people or been embarrassing to our families or to our reputations. Some of us hide because of things that we have done ourselves. But then for others of us, for others of us, like with Mephibosheth, it's not because of what we've done, but it's because of things that have been done to us. People have said and done things to us. They've mistreated us. They've abandoned us. And those things that have happened to us due to no fault of our own, those things have left us just wanting to hide. Some of you here today, you've had important adults in your life. Maybe parents or coaches or spouses or bosses. You've had important people in your life say and do things to you that have just crushed you. Some of you here today, some of you have been sexually assaulted or you've been physically or verbally abused. Some of you have faced discrimination because of the color of your skin or because of the country that you've come from. Things have been done to you that you didn't deserve. It wasn't because of anything that you've done. 
You didn't invite it, but it happened and it hurts and you find yourself just wanting to hide because of it. There's stuff that we do and there's stuff that happens to us that makes us just want to hide. And I think for some of us, all of that fear and shame and hiding, it transfers to our spiritual lives too. When we think about God, we can picture him maybe the way that Mephibosheth was picturing King David. We can picture God as an angry tyrant who just wants to eliminate us. We look at the things we've done and we think there's no way God could ever love me because of what I've done. Or we look at the things that have been done to us and we think there's no way that stuff could have ever happened if there was a God who loved me in the first place. And so we run away from him and we hide. Is that you today? Like Mephibosheth, is your story a nightmare that has sent you into hiding? Now, as you read this story about Mephibosheth, and as you feel the drama of his life, I think what anyone with a heart wants to see happen is to see a happy ending. We want to see the nightmare end. We read this story and we root for this guy. And for us, even when we're in the midst of our own hiding, even in our own fear and shame, even when it feels crippling, what we long for deep down is to be able to come out of hiding and to be able to really live again. It might be a nightmare right now, but we dream of a happy ending someday. And this is where our story in 2 Samuel takes a beautiful turn. Check out verse 7. In verse 7, David says, Mephibosheth. And he answered, behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, and watch this, look at these words. David said to him, do not fear. Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. What is David doing here? He's inviting Mephibosheth to come out of hiding and come to a place where he can really live. At the very moment where Mephibosheth thinks the nightmare is real, David calls him by name and he tells him that it's actually the happy ending to a dream that was far too good for him to ever even dream in the first place. Now Mephibosheth, he can't even believe it. For him, what David offers is way too good to be true, which is why in verse 8 he calls himself a dead dog and he keeps his face buried in the dirt. But then David actually does everything that he said he was going to do. Look at verse 9. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson, to Mephibosheth. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson, Mephibosheth, may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants, all of whom are now going to Mephibosheth. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son himself whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. And so Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. 
So what we see here is that David follows through on his promise and he does everything he said he was going to do. In fact, we see David do three things for him. First, he gives him protection. He doesn't kill him. He puts the sword away. Gives him protection. Second, he gives him provision. He meets all of his needs. Mephibosheth was hiding out at a place called Lo Debar, which in Hebrew means no pasture. Like no food, nothing to eat. And David brings him back to Jerusalem, the capital city, and he gives him a house and land and food and servants, and he restores to him everything that belonged to his grandfather Saul. So David gives him provision. And then finally, third, David gives him position. He gives him a seat at his own table. The king's table was the royal banqueting table. It was all, where all the government leaders would gather to feast with the king. And four times in this text, we are told that Mephibosheth would always eat at the king's table. This was a position of honor. And four times the narrator reminds us of it because it's that big a deal. Now think with me for a second here about what would happen as Mephibosheth came to that table with his crippled legs. Twice in this passage, including in the final verse of the story, we're told about Mephibosheth's crippled feet. And his feet would have been something that everyone and anyone would see and would know everywhere he went. It was a disability. It was something he couldn't hide. It was visible to everyone who looked at him. And so it could have easily been a source of shame in his life. You could see his feet, that he couldn't walk, that he couldn't move. Maybe he's on crutches or maybe somebody's carrying him. He can't do it. But when he comes to the table, what happens? What happens as he sits down at the table? Picture it. He's at the banqueting table, surrounded by others. And as he's seated at the king's table, his disability disappears. It's disappeared. It's, it's covered. And at the table, he's just like everyone else. He's just like everyone else. He's an equal at the table. The table is a perfect symbol of the provision, protection, and, and position that David gives to Mephibosheth. He is an equal at the table. And so here is the deal with Mephibosheth. He spends the first half of his life or however long living in hiding under a desk because of his fear and his shame. And from his vantage point, there is nothing, there's really nothing that he could possibly do to ever get out of that situation on his own. He's stuck there underneath the desk with no way out. But then the very person he's been afraid of all along actually comes to the rescue and does the exact opposite of what he expects. The king shows up and instead of putting him to death, actually gives him life and gives him a seat at the table. And why does the king do what he does? Well, the key to this whole story is in verse 3. Look again at verse 3. David says, that I may show the kindness of God to him. The reason the king does this kindness has nothing to do with anything Mephibosheth has done to earn it or deserve it. The reason David does what he does is because of his commitment to Jonathan and because of the kindness of God. 
And because of God's kindness, Mephibosheth gets to come out of hiding and enter into life. He really gets to live again. You see, as we look at this story, as you look at the Bible as a whole, it's easy to think that it's all about David and that David is a hero. But if you know anything about the storyline of the Bible, you know that like almost every character in the Bible, David is not really a hero. In fact, just two chapters after the story, David commits adultery, gets the woman pregnant, and then murders her husband to try to cover the whole thing up. David is not a hero, and this story is not primarily about David. This story, like every story in the Bible, is primarily about God. And at the center of the story is not David and his kindness, but God and his kindness. It is the kindness of God that David shows to Mephibosheth. It is the kindness of God that gets Mephibosheth out of hiding. And ultimately, it is only God and his kindness that will get us out from all the places where we are hiding as well. See, the God of the Bible is a God who delights to rescue and restore his people. From beginning to end, he is the God of kindness who loves his people with a never failing, never giving up, always and forever kind of love. And that love and that kindness is most vividly on display in the person of Jesus. As the Apostle John wrote, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. The God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. The truth is that we are all spiritual Mephibosheths. We've all got shame and fear and lots of other stuff that sends us into hiding. We believe a sword is coming for us. And in fact, we deserve the sword because of our sin. But what Jesus Christ did is he came and he took the sword for us. He went to the cross and he took the sword that we deserved for our sin so that God could offer us his kindness instead. Jesus gave up his place at the table so we could have a place at the table. And because of Jesus, God now offers us the same three things that David gave to Mephibosheth. He offers us protection. He won't punish us as our sins deserve. Jesus took the sword so we don't have to. He offers us provision. He promises to meet our needs now and give us eternal life forever. And he offers us position. He invites us into his family to become his honored, beloved sons and daughters. He invites us to come feast at his table. And when we're seated at his table, all our shame and all our fear is covered. So when you look at the story of David and Mephibosheth, what you're seeing is a picture of God's covenant kindness on display. What David did for the crippled son of Jonathan, the God of heaven offers to do for you and for me through the crucified son of God. And this means two things for us today. The first is this. You need to receive God's kindness. You need to receive God's kindness. God has a place at his table waiting for you. And he wants you there. But as long as you're hiding under the desk upstairs, you can't enjoy the meal. Now, my kids, I have three boys, and all of them age up in the summer. Jet had his birthday about three weeks ago. Archer's birthday is this coming Saturday, and Tripp's birthday is three weeks away. So lots of birthdays happening in the Borchuk household right now. And uh, just imagine, you know, as, as their parents with these three boys, our boys love their birthdays and they love being celebrated on their birthdays. And so we love them and we want them to feel celebrated. So we buy them presents. We get them gifts. 
And just imagine if uh, on one of their birthdays, so say Trip, we'll use him as the example, he's the oldest. So just imagine that on Trip's birthday in a few weeks, we buy him a bunch of gifts and we've got them wrapped and they're sitting in the living room and he, morning comes and he wakes up. And by the way, this would never happen in real life because he really loves presents and he really loves his birthday. But just imagine, just pretend with me for a second that it's his birthday and he wakes up and he refuses to come downstairs. And we plead with him. We say, Trip, come on. It's your birthday. We want to celebrate you. We love you. We got this awesome stuff for you. We want to give it to you, buddy. Come on down. Come join us. But he just stays in his bed. He crawls under the bed. He hides under there. Like if he does that, he misses out on all that's been purchased and provided for him already. He misses out on the joy that's available to him. We've already done everything necessary for him to have it, but if he doesn't come to the table, he never gets to enjoy the goodness of the gifts. And y'all, the same is true with God's kindness. Jesus has done everything necessary to purchase God's kindness for you and make it available to you. And he delights to give it to you. He wants to protect you and provide for you. He wants to restore you to position in the family, but you have to receive it. You have to come to the table and take what he's offering you. And that's true for those of, you here, those of you here today who have never received Christ. Like, God wants you at his table, and so come. The table is open. Jesus paid your way. It's available. Come to the table. But it's also true for lots of us who are already believers in Christ. Like, after we receive Christ, sometimes so many of us, we stay in hiding. We don't come to God because we don't experience intimacy with him because we're afraid of what will happen if we show up at the table. We're afraid that God will reject us because we haven't been reading the Bible enough lately or because we can't seem to break that porn habit or because we drank too much last weekend or because our marriage isn't perfect and it's falling apart. We look at our imperfections and our failures and we think there's no way, there's no way that God could receive me at his table in the condition that I'm in right now. And so we stay in hiding. We stay up in our bed, not coming and enjoying the gifts. Y'all, I need to tell you something really, really, really important this morning. I need you to listen to this. That conception of God, the idea that he accepts you based on your performance, about how, uh, based on how good you're doing at any given time, that is a lie. That is a lie. When we play the performance game, we are forgetting the truth about the table. We are forgetting that our seat at the table does not come because of our performance or our perfection. But it came, it comes because of God's kindness and grace. He wants us at the table, not because of what we've done, but because of what he has done. And what he has done is he sent his perfect son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to pay for all of your imperfections and failures. And because Jesus did that for you, now you can come to the table free of charge with all your imperfections and all your failures and all your shame and all your shortcomings, and you can allow him to cover all of it at the table. But you've got to come. You've got to come. And practically speaking, the way that God covers it all in our lives, the way he heals our hurts and he relieves our shame at the table, it's through the other people sitting at the table with us. It's through the community of faith that surrounds us when we come and we sit down at the table. It's through coming and sharing with others what's really going on in your life. And what's going on in your heart so that you can experience his kindness through real people. And y'all, that is risky. 
It requires vulnerability. But it is in that vulnerability that you open yourself up to the possibility of being surprised by the kindness of God through others. Only when you're vulnerable can you receive the grace that God offers you in Christ. And so the invitation to you today, the invitation to you today is to come to the table. Come and be vulnerable. Come and be real so you can experience God's kindness through the community of faith. And then when you do, and this is the second thing and the place where we'll finish. Once you've received his kindness, like David, make your life about extending that kindness to others. You'll remember that it was God's kindness that David showed to Mephibosheth. It was something that David himself had received and then he passed on. And in that way, David provides a beautiful picture of what recipients of God's kindness naturally do with others. The best picture I know of this are my friends Dan and Christine, and I want to finish today by telling you their story because I think it so beautifully captures the essence of what God is calling us to in this story in 2 Samuel. At 18 years old, a week before she was supposed to head off to college, Christine found out she was pregnant. Her future flashed before her eyes. She was scared and alone. She could think of no other alternative, and so she went to a clinic and she scheduled an abortion. And on the scheduled day, they did an ultrasound, and they found out on that day that she was too far along in the pregnancy to legally have the abortion. And so she was stuck at that moment, having this baby she didn't want, and now college was not going to happen for her. A few months later, she gave birth to her daughter, Courtney. And when Courtney was born, Christine found out that Courtney had extremely complex and life-threatening disabilities. The doctors projected that she would live at most a few years, and during that time, she'd mostly be in a vegetative state for her entire life. The prospects were bleak. And so here's Christine at 18 years old. No boyfriend, the guy had run off. No husband, no job, no plan, no college, living on welfare with a special needs daughter and lots of medical bills coming her way. Imagine the shame and the fear, the emotion that she would experience in that space. That's a place where she wanted to hide. And yet that's where the God of kindness intervened in her life. He brought a Christian friend into Christine's life. And that friend invited her to come to the table and join her at church one Sunday. And Christine came, and she kept coming. And as she joined the table, as she came to the church community, she was vulnerable. And there she found God's kindness in that church community, and she became a follower of Christ. And then in that community, at that table, there was a guy named Dan who took notice. And Dan asked her on a date, And eventually Dan asked her if he could become Christine's husband and become Courtney's dad. Now Dan didn't have to do that. He was stepping into a whole lot of hurt, a whole lot of pain, a whole lot of mess. But he would receive God's kindness and he wanted to extend it to another. And so he entered into that story to show the kindness of God to Courtney by being her dad and to Christine by being her partner and raising that precious girl. And together Dan and Christine have continued to do it. For over 20 years now, they've regularly volunteered at a hospital for children with special needs. 
And at that hospital, they show the kindness of God to kids and families in really, really difficult circumstances. About 11 years ago on a mission trip to El Salvador at an orphanage, they met a special needs boy named Kevin. At the time, Kevin was nine years old but weighed just 18 pounds. And Dan and Christine fell in love with Kevin. And they adopted him and they brought him to the U.S. and they made him part of their family. Doctors predicted that neither Kevin nor Courtney would live to see their teens. But both of them shattered the odds. They both graduated from high school. They completed marathons with Dan pushing them in their wheelchairs. They played in baseball leagues. They both worked jobs. And all along the way, they showed God's kindness to the world through their beaming smiles everywhere they went. Now, Courtney actually passed away about a year ago now. She was in her early 20s, having lived a life that far surpassed all expectations. Hundreds of people gathered for her funeral. Kevin is thriving today. He just turned 20 and attended his high school graduation ceremony a few weeks ago. Now, none of what Dan and Christine have done has been easy. Medical emergencies and extended hospital stays and costly bills and lots of worry, that's been their story. But through it all, Dan and Christine just keep showing God's kindness. They've received the kindness of God themselves and they've devoted their lives to extending that kindness to others. Because y'all, that is what the kindness of God does. And when God's people extend God's kindness, it gives life to people like Christine and Courtney and Kevin and Mephibosheth and to you and to me. And so here in Chicago, here in Rogers Park, in the office where you work, in the building where you stay, in the neighborhood where you live, all around us are people like 18-year-old Christine standing at the door of the abortion clinic in shame and fear who can see no way out. All around us are people like nine-year-old Kevin, orphaned, abandoned, and desperately in need. All around us are people like you and me who are carrying around guilt and shame and fear from what we've done or from what has been done to us. And like David with Mephibosheth, God wants them to come to the table. As if you're here today and you've received his kindness, what God is asking of you is that you extend it to others. Who are those people in your life? The unlikely, the undeserving, the difficult, the outsiders. Who is God calling you to extend his kindness to? Today, God is offering his kindness to you. He's inviting you to come to his table always and to spend your life inviting others to join you at the feast. And so today, receive his kindness and then go and extend that kindness to a world in need. I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. The band's gonna start to play here. And I wanna give you a moment at the end of this sermon to just reflect on what we've heard. Some of you here today, you have, uh, you have not yet received the kindness of God in your life. And you need to know today that the table is open and what it requires of you is that you come. Others of you, you've called yourself a believer in Christ for a long time maybe, but there's things in your life that you're hiding. There's stuff in your heart, there's place in your heart you don't want anyone to see. You're ashamed of it, you're afraid of what will happen if you come out of hiding. And I want to invite you today to come to the table and to bring it here to others. 
We're gonna have deacons up front by the stage. Our deacons are confidential, they're safe people who can carry what you're sharing. They can, you can bring it to them, it'll be safe with them. And it's a place where you can practically come to the table and be vulnerable, come out of hiding. And my encouragement to you today, wherever you're at in your spiritual journey, whatever's going on in your life, is don't leave here today without telling somebody. Bring it into the open, come out of hiding, come to the table so you can experience the kindness of God. So in a moment, I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna give you a second here in silence just to sit and reflect. And I'll pray and I'll close this out and then I invite you to come forward and talk to our deacons. Father, we thank you today for your kindness. You're a God who loves us with a never failing, never giving up, always and forever love, the kind of love we all long to experience, the kind of love we need. And I pray, Father, that today we would taste it, that we would drink deeply of your kindness toward us. We thank you for this story. Thank you that Mephibosheth found life when he came out of hiding, when he was brought out of hiding. And would today be a day where others come out of hiding and come into life? Would you grant courage to share and be vulnerable to those who need it right now? And Father, would you make us a people as a church who show, who extend your kindness to the world around us, to those who are hurting, to those who are uh, struggling, make us a church that is marked by the kindness of our great good God. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Come forward.